just by show of hands, and I don't think this is going to be any one or two people being singled out, but just by show of hands, how many of you prior to this week have ever, ever heard of or done any meaningful thinking or reading about the doctrine of simplicity? Raise your hand. Have not. Have not is what I mean. Have not. Okay, so about half, 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 half not. Okay, this week and next week when we get into immutability and passability, uh, this is kind of the, this is the rocky road of the path that we're on over the course of the 11 weeks. It's the areas where perhaps some of you might be least familiar, uh, but I hope that in these areas where you find yourself maybe least familiar, you would actually find your study to be most rewarding. Um, I hope that was the case this week. So we're going to be talking about divine simplicity. And divine simplicity is not so simple. That's not exactly what it means. Or that God is a simpleton. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about divine simplicity. But before we get there, let me just do a little bit of review. When we say that God is incomprehensible, what do we mean? Talking about the incomprehensibility of God. What, what are we saying when we say that God is incomprehensible? We can, we can know him truly, but we can't know him. Okay, we know him truly, but not fully. That's right. That's right. Okay. And then last week, we talked about uh, God's infinity and God's independence or his aseity. When we're talking about God's aseity, what exactly are we talking about? Anybody can answer. God has everything he needs in himself. Okay, so God is life in and of himself. He needs nothing outside of himself to be himself. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. Okay, so to put it positively like David did, he is self-sufficient. To put it negatively, he is not dependent on anything outside of himself to be himself. So that's aseity or independence. Okay, but when we talk about his infinity, what are we talking about? We say that God is infinite. Not limited or restricted by anything. Yeah, those are the key words, that he is great without limit. His supremacy is limitless. It cannot be measured, cannot be encapsulated or captured in any way. And so in each one of these three attributes, it should be clear, if we haven't beat this into your head enough over the last five weeks, is that God is not a bigger, better version of us. He is an altogether different being. He's not on this scale of being where it's a rock, then a kangaroo, then us, then angels, and then God somewhere further down the spectrum. He's not even on the spectrum. He is a spectrum to himself. That's what it means for him to be ase, to be of himself. And so every week in your reading, bear it drives this home time and again, I'm going to drive it home time and again, is to, to encourage all of us to resist this maybe habitual evangelical way of thinking about God as really being maybe part of or not maybe included in or interacting with his creation in such a way that the way that we think about the rest of the world and the way that we think about ourselves is the way that we should think about God. And of course, that kind of language about God, that kind of speaking about God we learned from the first week is what we would call univocal language. But that's not sufficient language, is it? Univocal language is language that says God is just like us. I mean, it could be slightly different, you know, uh, 
in scale, but essentially, at its essence, it's exactly the same thing. But the kind of language that we want to primarily use when we're speaking about God is not univocal language. What kind of language is it? Analogical, Analogical language. It's an analogy, right? It's, it's speaking of the same thing. It's two different things speaking in the same way. That they're similar, but they're not the same. Okay? So when we talk about God being infinite, when we talk about God in any way, we are speaking in analogical ways because there's no way that human language can fully capture the fullness of God's godness. And yet it can capture it, as Mike said earlier, truly. And so we want to try to be as faithful to that as we can. And the same is going to be true for the doctrine of divine simplicity. You can neatly file it in the, in the file cabinet of divine incomprehensibility. It's one of those say what doctrines. What are we talking about? Divine simplicity? This wasn't simple at all. Well, look at the summary. The doctrine of divine simplicity asserts that God is essentially infinite and independent, I'll say, and thus cannot be composed of parts, as if his essence and his attributes are separate. Rather, God is singular perfection. And his godness, or his essence, is identical with all that he is in and of himself. In other words, all that is in God is God. We're going to unwrap that over the course of the next hour, hour and ten minutes. You have more ink in your notes this week than you typically do. There's a reason for that. It's because there's a lot of logical work that we've got to do to arrive at some of the conclusions that we're going to make. And so at the risk of anybody here getting lost or not being able to take notes fast enough, I went ahead and included the core arguments that I'm going to be walking through. There'll be some additional supplemental material as we go, uh, but you should be able to follow along. It's all in your notes there, okay? How have people typically formulated this doctrine? Look at a handful. Second line of confession. So what we have right here, it's in the front of your binder, Article 2 is, that the Lord our God is without parts. I wonder how many of you, if you read that, you thought that maybe he was saying, well, of course, he's spirit, he doesn't have an arm, he doesn't have a leg, that's what you were thinking about. But after this week, you should know that, no, they actually mean something very different when they talk about God being without parts. Now, I'm talking about body parts, right? It means that he's not a composite being. Peter Sandlin puts it this way, how important is it? Well, he says the simplicity of God is the most fundamental doctrinal grammar, not rammer, but grammar of divinity. In other words, it sets the kind of grammatical rules, so to speak, for how we can talk about God, formulate our thoughts about God, speak true things about God. Joel Vicky says God's simplicity means that he has no parts and his attributes are all one in him. Expanding a little further, you read this this last week, Matthew Barrett. Simplicity is not merely a negative statement. God is without parts, but it's a positive one as well. God is identical with all that he is in and of himself. And then James Dolezal expands on that. The doctrine of divine simplicity teaches, one, that God is identical with his existence and his essence, and two, that each of his attributes is ontologically, ontology is, has to do with being, Right? Epistemology has to do with knowing stuff, how we know. Ontology is what we are, it's being. That each of his attributes is ontologically identical with his existence, and with every one of his attributes, there's nothing in God that is not God. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a minute. Listen to Charnock. God is the most simple being. 
For that which is first in nature, having nothing beyond it, cannot by any means be thought to be compounded, that is, composed of parts. For whatsoever is so depends upon the parts whereof it is compounded. And so is, and so is not the first being. Now God, being infinitely simple, hath nothing in himself which is not himself, and therefore cannot will any change in himself, he being his own essence and existence. You say, wow, that was a mouthful. Just so you know, this quote from Charnock was taken not from Ivory Tower Systematic Theology. This is from a sermon that he preached to his congregation. So the next time you complain about any one of my sermons, think about... Charnock's sermons on the doctrine of God. Goodness gracious. With a two-year-old on your lap, listening to Charnock. Well, what are the basic doctrinal claims? We'll talk about that. We'll get into the theological implications. We'll talk about its biblical foundations. We want to talk a little bit later about, what about the Trinity? How do we think about God being triune? Doesn't that make him at least three parts? How do we think about that? We want to talk about the consequences of its denial. And then we want to talk about practical applications. Okay? So we're going to move quickly. That's why I included most of the notes that you have in there. But please, I'll stop as we go, just to make sure anybody has any questions or comments they can make them. But you can feel free to shout out at any time, and I'll stop right where I'm at, and you can ask questions or make comments. Okay? Let's begin with doctrinal claims. The basic claim to the doctrine of simplicity, negatively speaking, is that God is not composed of parts. Composite beings, you know what I mean by composite beings? They're composed of things. We're composite beings. At the most fundamental level, a human is body and soul. We're composed of at least two parts. That doesn't get into our anatomy and and so on and so forth. But we're composite beings. And as composite beings, we're dependent upon the parts in order to be what we are. If you were to go out into the parking lot and you were to take my car apart into all of its various parts, it would cease to be a car. But if you were to take all of its various parts and put it all together in right and working order, it would become a car. It's dependent upon its parts to be what it is. And that's what we're saying here negatively, that whatever is composed of parts depends on its parts in order to be as it is. Remove one or more of its parts or change those parts in any way, and that thing ceases to be what it is and becomes something else. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, a part is anything in a subject. What is a part? That's what we're answering. What's a part? A part's anything in a subject that is less than the whole and without which the subject would be different than it is. Okay? I don't want to take for granted that we're all on the same page with what we mean by part. A part is anything that is less than the whole that the subject itself is dependent upon to be what it is. Okay? My carburetor... I don't have a carburetor. I'm fuel-injected, right? Um, My brake system... You get the analogy. I'm not going to waste time there. You understand what I'm saying. My brake system is not the car. My car needs a brake system, right? You take my parts out of my car, it ceases to be a car. You put the parts back together, and it is a car. Secondly, composite beings are dependent upon a composer distinct from themselves to unify their parts, an engineer, so to speak. That if God should be composed of parts, then that means logically he's doubly dependent. He's dependent, first of all, on the parts themselves to be what he is. But secondly, he's dependent upon a composer of some type to ensure that each part properly relates to the other parts and to hold together. 
And by its very nature, a composite being cannot be the composer of its own parts. It requires a wisdom that is above, beyond, and outside of itself to compose itself. Does that make sense? And so God is dependent upon the parts, and if he's dependent upon parts, then he's doubly dependent upon a composer. Now, because God is self-sufficient and self-existent, God cannot derive his being from anything prior to or outside of himself. Okay? That's what we talked about last week, remember? That's his aseity. He is independent. And so because God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God, we have to insist that all that is in God is God. Does that make sense? In other words, if God is dependent upon parts to be God, those parts are logically prior to, and God is dependent upon those parts to be himself, which undermines the doctrine of aseity. Okay? So if God is independent, then he cannot be a composite being. What about theological implications? Those are the basic assertions. So if you want to think about how is it that that summary of simplicity is worked out in, uh, in its basic affirmations, that's the previous section, but what are some of the implications? The first implication is this, that God is identical with his existence and his essence. That God's existence and his essence cannot be separate component parts in God. That his existence, that is his act of being, and his essence, what old theologians refer to as his quiddity, don't worry about that, cannot be composite parts in him, each supplying what the other one lacks. Okay? God has to be identical with his existence and his essence. In other words, God's essence is what we might call pure actuality. He simply is. So what David was saying earlier, he is in and of himself. He didn't even, he's not even his own cause. That would imply that God has a beginning. God just simply is. He's pure actuality. He is not caused by anything. But God's existence, secondly, is not what he has, but God's existence is what he is. And so his essence, that pure actuality, is his existence because his existence is what he is. I know that all of this is like, wait a minute, what? What are you talking about? Just hang with me. We're going to attack this from lots of different angles and it'll all come together by the time we finish. Okay? Secondly, each of God's attributes are identical with his essence. One of you put it this way, Kristen, I think it was you, that God's simplicity says his attributes aren't divided up in him like... Uh, you said like slices of a pizza, you know, pie. or a pie. Yeah, that's right. He's not, he's not like, different. each attribute isn't like a slice of a pie all put together composing the whole. There is no distinction between, or rather his attributes are identical with his essence. First point being made under that is that there's no distinction between God's essence and his attributes. That God does not depend on qualities distinct from his essence in order to exist as he does. In other words, his essence isn't comprised of the sum total of his attributes to be his essence. Does that make sense? That would make him dependent on something logically prior to, more basic than himself. He does not require what is not God in order to be God. George Swinock put it this way, God is all essence all being, nothing else. 
Or to put it another way, all that is in God is God. Secondly, all of God's attributes are identical to one another. If God is simple, then God cannot be dependent upon his component parts. Because those parts are more basic, logically prior to him, than the fullness of his being. In other words, there is something that is before God, and there is something that is more basic than God, if God is dependent upon parts to be who he is. Does that make sense? John Owen put it this way, the attributes of God, and by the way, these are on the, in your notable quotables. John Owen says this, The attributes of God, which alone seem to be distinct things in the essence of God, are all of them essentially the same with one another. And everyone the same with the essence of God himself. George Swinock again echoes John Owen. He says God's attributes, quote, are one indivisible essence. To will and to understand, to love and to hate and to be. They're all the same and one in God. Okay? So if God is simple, then he cannot be dependent upon his component parts. But secondly, B, if God cannot be dependent upon component parts to be God, then all of God's attributes must be identical in him because they can't be parts. Thirdly, C, if all of God's attributes are identical in him, then God's essence is not composed of a bundle of attributes. Each existing alongside the others is an integrated whole And every attribute in God, then, is identical with God himself. God is love. God is grace. God doesn't just have love, have grace, have mercy. God is those things to its fullness and without measure. Does that make sense? To be anything less than that would be less than God. God is his attributes. James Dolezal puts it this way. Turn to your notable quotables. It begins with properly speaking. He says, properly speaking, God is good by virtue of God, not goodness. He is wise by virtue of God, not wisdom. He is powerful by virtue of God, not power. He is love by virtue of God, not love. And when we say that God is goodness itself, wisdom itself, power itself, and love itself, we do not mean that these are so many really distinct parts or forms in God, but simply that he is all that is involved in these terms by virtue of his own divine essence as such. In other words, to say that God is wise because of wisdom is to say that there is something logically prior to God upon which God is dependent upon to be himself, namely wisdom. Same thing with power and so on and so forth. There is something logically prior to him and more basic to God in his essence that God is dependent upon in order to be God if God is good by virtue of goodness, wise by virtue of wisdom, but rather we want to say that God is wise by virtue of God. Why? Because God is wise. There's, there's, there's no abstract quality of wisdom logically prior to or more basic than God himself. Therefore, he is wise and the very source of all wisdom. Asa. Uh, for point 2B, can you just yeah. uh, explain what his attributes being identical in him means? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, what it means is, is that it's not meaning they're, that they're identical in their manifestations. So the way that we typically think about God's attributes are the way that they manifest themselves in his works of creation and providence and in redemption. 
right? Including the revelation of himself and his word and his son and so on and so forth. And so the way, the, the crude way that we put it before is like pure white light being refracted and you see different colors coming through, but in essence, it's all the same light, okay? Uh, that refraction is just a manifestation of pure light visible to our eyes because we can't see pure white light, right? When in reality, what it is, is it's identical to the very light from which it emanates. Does that make sense? The reason I say it's a crude illustration is because we don't want to think about God's attributes somehow being divided as if you put like water through a cheese grater in Revelation. That's not what we mean. Um, It is just to say that our experience of his godness, of the manifestation of his godness, will be different in different ways depending on how he's revealing himself in creation, providence, and redemption. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You were describing God as being love and also as being wise. Is there? I'm not, I'm not sure if you're trying to make a distinction between one being an adjective and one being a noun. Mm-hmm. Is that just a, a... God is love. God is wisdom. Okay, so there's yeah. no distinction. Yeah, it's just, I just misspoke. Good catch. Good catch. Any other questions? Okay. We're in the weeds now, aren't we? Let's keep on chopping away. Are we on C? Right after that quote by Dolezal, yeah, see. Okay, so see, God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God. This is the third implication. God cannot depend what is not God in order to be God. Just follow along with me. All component parts are distinct from and basic, that is logically prior to the composite beings in which they're incorporated. Think car parts and cars, we've already talked about All composite beings, that is those things composed of parts, are dependent upon sources of being and existence, that is its parts, that are distinct from and prior to themselves. God, however, is eternal. Nothing is prior to him. Infinite, he's without limitation, and independent, self-sufficient in and of himself. And since God is these things, and he cannot be dependent upon sources of being and existence that are distinct from and prior to himself, because he's eternal, say and infinite, then he cannot be dependent upon the component parts in order to be God. To make God dependent upon his parts is to undermine each one of those three core doctrines of who God is in his essence. He would cease to be infinite, he would cease to be passe, independent, and he would cease to be eternal. Okay, so those are the theological implications just by review. God is identical with his existence and his essence. Each of God's attributes are identical with his essence, and God cannot depend on what is not God in order to be God. Thoughts, comments, or questions at this point? Everybody's hanging in. Doing all right. Okay. So is there like a starting point then? Like, can we start... Can we say, like, this is an appropriate attribute to start with when we think about God? Or is it sure we can start anywhere, or we shouldn't start in any one place because it implies that that's more important? Yeah, I think, so what the doctrine of simplicity is going to do is stop us from thinking that when we speak, when we start by speaking anything of God, including his incomprehensibility, which is where we started, then we are, in essence, speaking of every other attribute insofar as they're the fullness of God himself. So we just have to have that in mind, that we're never speaking of any attribute in a way that is somehow detached from 
or contrary to or disconnected from any other aspect of who God is in himself. To do that would to break would be essentially to break God up into components. So it's just to say, yeah, you can start, but you want your language to be measured in such a way that we don't speak of him as if God has a little bit of this, God has a little bit of this, God has a little bit of this, and by the time we get to all these things that God has, now we have God. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's what we want to avoid. Um, which, to be honest, that's actually how a lot of Christians think about God. Right? That God is the sum total of his perfections. Uh, well, if that's true, then God is not infinite, he is not eternal, and he cannot be say He is something other than the God who's revealed himself in the Bible. That God is. Now, that doesn't mean, is everybody walking around being heretics because they don't affirm the doctrine of simplicity? I don't want to say that. Listen, we want to be exceedingly gracious with ourselves and with one another when it comes to these kinds of things. Uh, because on this side of the resurrection, there's going to be all kinds of things with which we are well-intentioned and yet inconsistent in our doctrine of God. And we need to be willing to suffer our own inconsistencies and especially the inconsistencies of others. So part of the reason we're going through this is not to arm you with new kind of theological machine guns to wage war on all the crappy theology on Facebook, right, or (laughs) elsewhere, right? It's not to turn you into the doctrine police. At the end of the day, the reason we do this is, as we said time and again, is so that you might know God better, that you would enjoy him more, and that you would help others do the same. That's the goal. And so if there's any part of you that all of a sudden starts thinking about how other people are talking about God and you just want to start pulling out slingshots, then you probably need to check your pride and repent. Okay? That's not to say that there's not time, as, as Paul commanded, to teach what accords with sound doctrine and correct that which contradicts it. But he also says elsewhere that, that the servant of the Lord does so gently and kindly so as to win his opponent to Christ. He doesn't do it in any way that's brash or arrogant, and so this is by no means meant to do that. I think sometimes when we start to get in and we start to see these logical connections and it can sometimes seem so tight that we figured God out, and in figuring God out, now we become just proud and pompous in our theology, and we can't go there. We've got to go back and reset on the doctrine of incomprehensibility, don't we? And go, even what we're doing here is woefully inadequate to capture the godness of God. Okay, so yes, let's start somewhere. Let's just start somewhere, keeping in mind what we know about God in light of his simplicity. And to your yeah. point, could we just say that because we're finite beings and we, can only, like, we only have the attention span to focus on one attribute at a time, so necessarily we cannot uh, do its proper justice just even in that to be able to communicate all attributes simultaneously which is where we need to start with grace with ourselves and others just in that yeah I think that's right that's right finite creatures cannot wrap their minds around infinite beings yeah and that should drive us to humility yeah any other thoughts comments questions before we move on All right, let's talk biblical foundations. You may have noticed in your chapter, there wasn't a whole lot of Bible verses. Well, how do we think about that? Well, I want to think, first of all, about a principle that we've already brought up once before, and it's called good and necessary consequence. Or, as 689 puts it, necessarily contain. They essentially mean the same thing. And what that does is it refers to doctrines and precepts that are truly contained in and intended by the divine author of Scripture, yet are not found or stated on the surface of the text. They have to be legitimately inferred 
from one or more passages of Scripture. This is what we did when we did the doctrine of the Trinity, didn't we? That there wasn't any one passage that we could go to that encapsulated the whole doctrine of the Trinity. We had to go to, okay, it's one God. Okay, there are these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and yet there is one God. And, and so you're taking all of these and you're starting to draw necessary consequences from the whole Bible about who God is. That's what we just recited in the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is essentially an exercise in good and necessary consequence. It's not just one Bible quotation after another. It's taking whole Bible theology, the testimony of the scriptures, on various other kinds of doctrines concerning God, and then drawing legitimate, that is good, but necessary consequences or conclusions off of those doctrines. And that's what we're going to have to do here if we arrive at the doctrine of simplicity. Another thing to think about, though, is uh, that even though the doctrine of simplicity requires that one contemplates the implications of other doctrines, it's not for that reason any less biblical. It's not sub-biblical, as if those who have those things that have the highest pile of proof text and Bible verses are the more biblical things. What we want to say is that all that is explicitly stated in Scripture and that all that necessarily follows from Scripture must be equally regarded as the Bible's teaching. So not just that which is explicitly stated, but also that which necessarily follows from that which is explicitly stated in the Bible. Okay? is necessarily consequent. So that's good and necessary consequence. But B, what are some biblical doctrines from which divine simplicity is a necessary consequence? Well, we've already talked about them. This is why we're doing this study in this order. We talked about God's aseity. Just to summarize what we talked about last week, it's that perfection in God by which he is life in and of himself. And thus he's self-sufficient and self-existent. And that because God is ase of himself, he can neither be caused nor dependent upon anything other than himself in order to be God. We beat that horse last week. Just out of curiosity, go back to your notes from last week. What are some theological implications of the doctrine of aseity, just as a refresher? When we say that he's independent, what are some of those implications of our affirmation? So God is all life in and of himself, and all life flows out of him. Yep, good. What else? You should find in your notes, it'd be like those main headings that have a bunch of Bible verses under them. Each one of those headings is an implication. He does not need anything from us. So he doesn't need anything from us? That's right. Okay, what else? Give me one more. He does not derive knowledge from outside himself. Doesn't derive knowledge from outside himself? Mm-hmm. Say it again. Let's keep going. And neither is informed by his creatures. That's right. Neither informed by his creatures. He is in and of himself. say He is independent, self-sufficient, self-existent. Well, what does this have to do with simplicity? Follow along the logic that we have here. If God, as we established last week, possesses his essence, existence, and attributes as distinct parts... 
that together determine his being, then God is indebted to something other than or prior to and outside of himself for his fullness of being. And if God is composed of parts, then our trust in him must look beyond God to some source of being more basic than God. But if God is truly ase, then God cannot be dependent upon anything that is more basic than himself. And we must conclude then that all that is in God is God. And if all that is in God is God, then God's essence, existence, and attributes must be identical, not mere parts that mutually inform or reinforce one another, but are distinct from each other. Our conclusion would be this, that if God is not simple, then God is not self-existent and self-sufficient, and he does not have life in and of himself. He would be dependent on something outside of himself to be what he is. So you can see how the doctrine of simplicity is both a necessary consequence of the doctrine of his aseity or independence, which we established from all over the Bible last week, but it's also foundational, logically speaking, to his independence. That if God is not simple, that is, he is composed of parts, then he is dependent upon something more basic and prior to himself, and he cannot be independent. So God's independence, his aseity, demands his simplicity. And his simplicity demands his aseity. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Okay? That's why you guys have done a lot of the heavy work prior to coming to this. And now you've got all the foundations you need to understand. Okay? Let's think secondly about God's infinity. That perfection of God by which he is free from all limitations... In other words, infinity means that there's no limit to God's perfections. He is his perfections in limitless measure. Look at your notes again. Give me some implications, maybe some good passages in the Bible for God's infinity. Looking at last week's notes. Mercy endures forever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It's a great making meta attribute, we said, to use Joel's meta language. Footnote. Bing! Joel. What else? Looking for implications, theological implications, truths about God's infinity. What are we saying? Get a little bit more specific. God cannot be avoided or escaped. Can't be avoided or be escaped. And so we're talking about his infinity with respect to his presence. His presence is not limited by his creation in any way. He is omnipresent. Right? What about his infinity with respect to his power? What did we say? He cannot be exhausted. That his power can't be exhausted. What about his infinity with respect to his knowledge? He, he has the fullness of knowledge. Nothing can inform him on anything. Okay. That he knows all things at once. He is not dependent upon anything outside of himself to know anything else. Nothing can be added to him at any point, including the, actions of free, the future actions of free creatures. All that to say... 
When we talk about God's omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his anything that we would add the alls to, all-knowing, all-powerful, all keep on going, then we're speaking about him in infinite terms. It's to say that he is those things without limit. Well, how does this relate to simplicity? Follow along with me. That which is perfectly infinite, that is limitless in greatness, cannot be composed from that which is finite, limited in greatness. No set of finite properties can yield an infinite being. Parts are necessarily finite. What do I mean by finite? Ends. Huh? Ends in itself. But it ends. It's measurable. Right? In order for God to be infinite in being, he cannot be composed of finite parts that are more basic than his essence and his existence. Conclusion, if God is not simple, then God is not infinite, but he is limited in his greatness. Thoughts, comments, questions about simplicity as it relates to infinity. We good? Okay. It's contrary to complex. So if you have a complex being, it means that it's a complexity. It's comprised of lots of different parts. Okay. So when it's saying it's simple, it doesn't mean easy or it just means it's not complex okay. in the sense that it's not comprised of lots of parts. Okay. Does that make sense? Even though he is really complex. Yes, but that's not the meaning of the term. Not complex in terms of hard, and not simple in terms of easy. It's thinking in terms of composition. Does that make sense? Complex things are composed. They're composite beings, because they're composed of other parts. God is a non-composite being, therefore he's non-complex, not made up of parts, therefore he's simple. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, that's good. I'm surprised I didn't have that in my notes. That's good. So smart. Well done. Simplicity and Trinity. Doesn't three persons mean then that God is, at the very least, divided into three parts? Well, how do we think about this? How can God be simple if he's triune? How can God be simple without parts if he's three persons? Doesn't the nature of the Trinity undermine the doctrine of simplicity? James Dolezal says this in your notable quotables. In our day, look for that one. And you can follow along with me. In our day, it is not an uncommon claim that a divine simplicity contradicts the Trinity. The divine simplicity needs to be retooled to bring, on, bring it into conformity with Trinitarian teaching. In the patristic period, the order seems to have been precisely the opposite. The Trinity needed to be articulated in such a way as not to conflict with the controlling conviction of God's simplicity. Indeed, only a doctrine of simplicity can ensure that one's doctrine of the Trinity was genuinely monotheistic and that the triune God was indeed absolute in being. So you see what Dolezal is saying. He's summarizing the patristic era and saying, no, it's not the case that simplicity should conform with Trinitarian theology. It's that our Trinitarianism needs to conform to simplicity. Because if God is not simple, he cannot be God. So to speak of the triune God in any way that isn't fundamentally simple is to talk about something other than the one who is God. Does that make sense? So simplicity becomes the measure of our orthodoxy when it comes to Trinitarian theology. At least that's how the patristics saw it according to Dr. Dolezal. So the doctrine of simplicity helps 
to both answer these questions while also guarding the church against heretical views of God. Okay? And that leads us to the next point. Divine simplicity guards us against heresy. Let's think first of all about Arianism. The objection of Arianism is that the divine persons are equal in existence, since the Father existed prior to the Son, or not equal in existence, rather, or essence, since the Son is neither co-eternal nor consubstantial, that is, of the same substance. How does simplicity respond? Well, here's how Athanasius argued. He argued that simplicity is essential to the eternal generation of the Son, God being without parts, is father of the son without partition or passion. In other words, according to Athanasius, the son is neither part of God, partition, nor an offspring that came about by some change in God, a passion. Look at this Athanasius quote beginning with divine generation. I don't have it in my notes. I've got to go back to the way back for it. Oh, nope, I'm on the wrong stack. Here we go. Not there yet. Almost there. Almost there. Read it, Kent. I'll get there. The divine generation there it is. cannot be compared to the nature of men, nor the Son considered to be part of God, nor the generation to imply any passion whatever. God is not as man. For men beget passively. That's changeably. Having a transitive nature. Changing. Which waits for periods by reason of its weakness. But with God, this cannot be. He is not composed of parts. But being impassable and simple, he is impassively and indivisibly father of the Son. So Athanasius is saying is that if the Son is just a part of God, then God has at some point undergone some kind of change in himself if the Father is prior to the Son, and thus God is no longer immutable, and if he is not immutable, that is unchangeable, then he is not God. And so we cannot say that the Son is created and that God is therefore still God in that way. So he's, he's going against Arius in that sense. But the thing I want you to notice is that his argument to Arius was fundamentally rooted in simplicity, and this idea that Arius was thinking about God as parts. In other words, let me put it this way, Arius knew that God could not be composed of parts and had to conceive of the Son in some other way that guarded against God's, that guarded God's immutability. Remember, we talked about this with Arius. We talked about lots of bad theology coming from really good intentions, that he was really interested in guarding the unchangeableness of God. And so he could not conceive of any way to think about the Son being God without dividing God into parts and thus inviting some kind of change in God, thus making him not God. Athanasius is going to start providing the language from simplicity to understand rightly the generation of the Son. And we'll get into more of that as we look at other heresies. Every heresy brings to it greater clarity to orthodoxy. That's one of the ways that God in his grace uses heresies through the years is that it sharpens our articulation of what is true. Another heresy then would be tritheism. The objection goes something like this, that if God is Father, Son, and Spirit, well, then do Christians not then worship three gods instead of one? Here's the response from simplicity. The triune God is not made up of three parts, but rather three persons. Each person doesn't possess part of God's essence and doesn't make up part of God. 
Each person fully exists in one undivided essence. And since God's essence and attributes are identical, that is that God is his attributes, doctrine of simplicity, and each person fully and equally exists in one undivided essence, that is they're not parts in God, each person wholly shares every attribute. The Son doesn't have a little bit of power. The Father doesn't have a little bit of power. The Spirit doesn't have a little bit of power. The Father, Son, and Spirit, all fully subsisting in one divine essence, fully share in the fullness of that essence, and that essence is identical to God's attributes. All that is in God is God. Okay? All that is in God is in the Son. All that is in God is in the Spirit. All that is in God is in the Father. Because all that is in God is God. Okay? But they want to establish also that these three persons are distinguishable and yet inseparable. They're distinguishable through what's called, quote, eternal relations of origin or personal modes of subsistence. You guys touched on this in your reading. We've talked about it a little bit before. Those eternal relations of origin distinguished by the persons are paternity, filiation, and spiration. Anybody want to take a shot at what those mean? What is paternity? The Father. What's specifically true about the Father? So we're talking about relationships of the persons within the Godhead. The Father is what? He begets. He begets. He's eternally unbegotten. Okay? He is eternally unbegotten. He has no logical source prior to himself. And bear in mind, we're talking logical. We're not talking chronological. Okay? What is filiation then? Filiation is talking about the Son. Then what is it saying about the Son? The Father is eternally unbegotten, then the Son is eternally begotten by the Father. And then spiration, speaking of the Spirit, is eternally spirated by the Father. And as confessions later on would add, and the Son as well. And so this is talking about the persons in terms of relations, but not in terms of essence. These relations of origin allow us to distinguish between each one of the three persons without aborting the unity of the three persons in the one divine being. That's what tritheism does. So Francis Turretin said it this way, simplicity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. And Turretin is one of the old Puritan, and he's one of the finest on the doctrine of God that you can find. Thirdly, the unity of essence and existence, or the unity of being, in the triune God, what we refer to as the imminent trinity, is revealed in how God acts toward his creation. That is the economic trinity. We talked about all this when we talked about the trinity. These external acts of God have been classically categorized under inseparable operations and divine appropriations. And when we're talking about inseparable operations, then what we're talking about is those external works of the trinity that are undivided, so that any work of creation, any work of providence, any work of redemption, all three persons are working indivisibly. No one ever goes rogue. Does that make sense? No one's ever operating on their, on their own will, separate from the will of the Father or the Son or the Spirit. Okay? So the unity and the indivisibility of their external works stems then from the simplicity of the one divine being. The only way that their works can be undivided is if God is in his essence undivided, that is not composed of parts. All three persons must share fully in an undivided fashion, indivisibly, 
the one divine essence. A divided God cannot work indivisibly. And in a God in three persons with each person working indivisibly must be an undivided God. And an undivided God is a simple God. Divine appropriations. Here these distinctions in the persons take on a focal role in the Trinity's external works. And they reflect the distinctions between the three persons who exist eternally in the one undivided divine essence. In other words, what we're saying is that when we see the distinction between the persons in their external acts of creation, providence, and redemption, it doesn't mean that, that God has somehow undergone change in his external acts in a way that is contrary to what he is prior to those acts in history. It's saying that the three persons who act indivisibly with one another have existed together as one divine essence for all of eternity. It's not that there was one God who got divided up into a three-hole cheese grater and now each one is working in a different way. God didn't undergo change when he started to act in those ways in creation, providence, and redemption. So it's just reversing backwards. These divine appropriations, that is, what they're doing externally, all it does is speak to the unity that the persons have for all of eternity in and of, or in that perfect, undivided divine essence. Okay? What does this have to do with simplicity? Well, let's conclude here. Since each person, then, is not a part of God, but holy God, there can be only one will and intellect in God, which, per simplicity, must be identified with the divine essence. Because of the Father and the Son and the Spirit each had their own wills, their own intellects, Eternally, then that would denote parts in God. One will, another will, and another will, but rather if all that is in God is God, then God's will, God's intellect, must be therefore indivisible, identical with his essence and fully shared by each the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. At the very heart of tritheism, or what we would call social trinitarianism, is a dividing up of God's will into three parts, each person of the Trinity having their own will or their own intellect, which undermines the doctrine of simplicity, and then leads to a whole host of other theological problems, as we've already noted earlier. Any questions about tritheism? Yeah. Oh, just ask Originally inseparable operations. That, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, you know, I always think of like the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays that not my will, but uh, your will be done. It would almost, I mean, I could see where somebody reading that would almost think, well, wait a minute, you know. Um, and I think I've always answered it like that was Jesus speaking from his humanity, but I want to say, it's like, is that how we, we would answer that kind of question? Because it would, it would almost yeah. seem to think yeah. that there is a. Yeah, we'll go into this in depth in the spring. So I'll, I'll address it now. We'll go into this in depth in the spring. So if you guys want to get in the Doctrine of Christ with me next spring, we'll be doing that. Um, I think that's true. I think one of the things that we need to make sure that we qualify is that even though Christ has two wills, uh, he is not in any way divided in the way that his human will can ever run contrary to his divine will. All right, which is one of the ways why God in eternity past is able then to guarantee the obedience of, of the Son to the redemption of his elect, that Christ could not fail because his will is indivisible from his divine will, which is indivisible from the will of the Godhead itself. Does that make sense? 
So yeah, this is one thing you say, well, this is getting really squirrely now. One will in God, two wills in Christ. Okay? One divine will in Christ. There was the divine will united with the Father and Son in one undivided essence for all of eternity. And then in the incarnation, a human will uh, that is remains undivided in the person of Christ. So Christ has two wills, divine and human. God has one will, the divine will. Okay? We'll spend lots of time on that next spring. Because that's what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. How does that work? I don't know. It's a mystery. Um, but we'll do our best to try to explain it. Okay? Okay. Modalism. We talked about this a little bit as well. Did you have your hand up, Joel? No. It's no? Okay. <laughs> Wait, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I'm not really sure how to ask this, but how does like, divine simplicity impact the way that we pray? Because I know sometimes people are like, pray for the Spirit to help you in this, or, you know, like dividing prayer. Oh, yeah. Wait till we get to the application section. Yeah. Hold on to that, because I think we might be able to answer that. Almost there. What time is it? 8.40. Okay. Um, I'm going to skip modalism for the sake of time. But you can follow the logic there. And I want to move to consequences and relevance. What are the consequences of denying simplicity? First of all, if God were not simple, God would self-destruct. First of all, if God is made up of parts, then God is divisible. And if God is divisible, then God is destructible. And if God is destructible, then God is corruptible. Here's an example. If God is corruptible, then so is his will. So here's a paradox for you. Is something considered good because God wills it to be so? Or does God will something because that thing is considered good? Well, if something is good because God simply wills it to be so, then God's willing sounds arbitrary. But if God wills something because it's good, then God is subservient to something greater than himself, namely a standard of good that exists outside of God himself. Does that make sense? God is subordinating this thing he's calling good to some standard of good beyond himself. Well, how would simplicity respond to this paradox? Namely, that God doesn't invent goodness ex nihilo, that is from nothing, nor does he conform to some external norm for goodness, No, God is goodness itself. All goodness is good because it mimics the very nature of God. Who is good? Therefore, God's will or his decree is good, not arbitrarily or dependently, but because God decrees all things in himself and God is good. This is how Article 3.1 interns, you can pay attention to this. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably. In other words, if God is composed of parts, then God is corruptible. And if God is corruptible, that is, he can undergo change, then we cannot in any way fully trust his will. You can apply the same logic to his law. Why is his law righteous? Not because he's arbitrarily made a law on some arbitrary sense of righteousness and not because he's submitting his law to some standard of righteousness outside of himself. The reason that his law is righteous is because it comes from him and he is in and of himself righteous. He's the very standard of righteousness. He is righteousness. 
you can apply this logic to all kinds of paradoxes. The main thing that you see, if you're kind of working your way backwards, is what you lose by denying simplicity is God as the fount of every good thing. Does that make sense? Simplicity guards the goodness of God. It, in guarding the good, simplicity guards the goodness of God and that it guards his aseity, that if God was dependent upon anything outside of himself to be himself, then he could not be the fullness of all life, not just in himself, but to anything that he's created. Because how can one be the fullness of life to something that you're dependent upon? You can't be. He ceases to be the fountain of life if he's not independent, and if he's not simple, then he's not independent. Does that make sense? So simplicity, the denial of simplicity, puts God in a place to where he's essentially powerless to create, and he's powerless to redeem. Because a God who is destructible and corruptible by virtue of having parts and is therefore changeable is not a God who can create, is not a God who can sustain, and he's not a God who can redeem. Forgiving infinite sin against infinite God by infinite means. That is the sinning of his son. So simplicity guards not only who God is, but it guards the very gospel. And so when we think about simplicity, you should be thinking of it as guarding, hemming in, giving us the very grammar that we can use to even think about God as being the source of all life, either in creation or redemption. Okay? Only an incorruptible, indivisible God can be that. And if he's to be those things, then he must be simple. Does that make sense? Okay. Practical relevance. First of all, divine simplicity guards the greatness of God, and the greatness of God fuels our worship. So we said God is great and he is worthy to be praised. But if God is not simple, then any 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 attributing of greatness to God is essentially rendered suspect at best or meaningless at worst. The way that we God, the way that we guard the goodness of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God in our own hearts and in our confessions is through a commitment to the simplicity of God. And it's meant to drive us deeper into the reality that everything that God is, is God. Which means that every attribute is infinite, every attribute is independent, he's in no way dependent upon you to be who he is, and he has everything in and of himself, the fullness of life and such that you would never lack anything should you be in him. He cannot be any of those things to you if he is not simple. And so there's something really glorious to the truth that all that is in God is God, that he is his attributes and each attribute fully without limit. So to speak of any attribute as being infinite is to say that that attribute is God. And to say that that attribute is God is to say that God is simple. Does that make sense? So it leads us to worship. It should fuel our worship. Secondly, divine simplicity assures us that wherever God is present, he is fully present with all of his attributes. And this may have to do with what you're talking about with prayer. Since God is simple, his attributes cannot be separated from one another or diffused or diluted by time or space. 
In other words, his external actions toward us, God doesn't change in who he is. And so when we go through the Bible and we see God's promise of his presence, the promise of his presence is the promise of the fullness of who God is. Not, I'll give you a little bit of myself, but I'm going to leave a little bit behind. It is all of God being there. So when we speak about God being omnipresent, we're not talking about God lightening the load a little bit so that he can make sure to stretch himself really thin to get everywhere he needs to be. It's to say all of God is where God is at all times. So to enjoy the presence of God as one who has been brought into communion with him in Christ through the Spirit is to enjoy a God to whom, with whom no attribute has been withheld. Because to be in communion with God is to be in communion with all that is in God, and all that is in God is God. So he is not to you powerful, but not gracious. He is not to you wrathful, but not merciful. He is not to you patient, and yet not kind. He is all of these things all at once. Now, in our lives and his external actions, we may, we may discern the revelation of certain kind of angles of his essence. Oh, that, that's loving and that's merciful. But let's not think for any minute that any one of those attributes is somehow just one sliver of God distinct from all these other parts in God. That when we are looking at any part of God's attributes in our life, we are, in essence, considering all of God's godness and everything that is inherent to it, which is the fullness of his being. This is really good news because we fear God and we trust God because all of God is always with us. He doesn't just give us part of ourselves like we do with our spouses and our friends and our children, where maybe we give the best parts, but not all the parts. God is not like us. He's an altogether different being. He gives us all of himself. And he can only do that if he's simple. Thirdly, divine simplicity assures us that if God is for us, all of God, not part of God, is for us. Jesus Christ, for instance, is the radiance of God's glory. He's the imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1. He reveals God to us and to angels. Right, His redemption is what angels long to look into. When angels witness Christ's crucifixion on the cross, they learn more about God and his attributes than in all of the previous acts that God had previously performed in his external acts. That's what Thomas Boston says. Again, the glory of one attribute is more seen in one work than in another. In some things there is more of his goodness, in other things more of his wisdom is seen, and in other more of his power. But in the work of redemption, all of his perfection and excellency shine forth in their greatest glory. All that God is, Christ manifests as our Lord and Savior. So for instance, when we see God's wisdom through Christ's atoning death, which satisfied divine wrath and divine mercy and love all together, 
that God punishes sin in Christ to satisfy his justice and his holiness, that God's wrath punishes sin in Christ to show us his mercy and his love. He demonstrates his patience by not destroying sinners immediately, Romans 3.25, but overlooks those sins previously committed, all in view of Christ's death. And we can just keep going and going and going and going. That's why Thomas Goodwin says redemption is God's masterpiece wherein he means to bring all his attributes on the stage. Isn't that awesome? This means that if God is for us in redemption, and he is, Romans 8, then God's simplicity demands that all of God, not just part of God, is for you. The infinite, eternal, independent, eternal God is on your side. And he has not withheld any aspect of himself. A.W. Tozer says this, When God justifies a sinner, everything in God is on the sinner's side. All the attributes of God are on the sinner's side, he says. It isn't that mercy is pleading for the sinner and justice is trying to beat it to death. He says, All of God does all that God does. <laughs> Isn't that good? All of God does all that God does. That's the doctrine of simplicity. Fourthly, divine simplicity promotes sincere motivations for holiness and love. Turn up John. Somebody read for me 1 John 5 through 7, if you're there. Mary, are you there? Yes. Get it. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so we notice here that when God is speaking of himself as light or spoken of as light, it's talking about pure, unbounded holiness. But notice here in verses 5 to 7 that when God reveals himself as light, he does so to compel us, the church, toward practical holiness. It is not to be just one aspect of God, to say that God is light, to say that this is God. God is holy. He's not just a little bit of holiness and a little bit of love. He is the fullness of holiness. And so, in the same way, we're to aim to be holy as God is holy. Now, we can't be divine as he's been divine. That's not what we're talking about. But in an analogical way, it's to say that our lives aren't to be divided. There's not to be any part of your life that is in the light and other parts that are not. It is to say that every part in an undivided way should be pursuing holiness that is conformity to God according to his word. And so... He did it to compel the church toward practical holiness. But turn over a few pages to 1 John chapter 4. Okay, so we want to be holy, not just a little holy in that part of life, but not so much in that part of life, but an undivided life of holiness. But now we see that God is love. Somebody read verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born from God. 
and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay? He's not merely saying that God has love. He said God is love. I think that's exactly how we should understand it through what we've been talking about tonight. And in the same way that God doesn't just have, he's not just partially love, but is an undivided essence of love, he is love. So in the same way, our lives shouldn't be divided into a little bit of love here, but not so much there. We should be seeking a life that is not divided in any way, but rather is seeking to be loving in every way, such that we would be imitators of God. It's not just to love the people that we really like and that are easy to get along with and not love those who are a little bit harder. Jesus said that we're to love even our enemies and to pray for them who persecute us. And so there is no cutting up love in our lives if we're to be imitators of God into pieces of pie. I've got my good friend's pie, and I've got my next-door neighbor pie, and I've got my family pie, but I certainly don't have those people in the other political party pie. I'm going to get rid of that one. you know, Or whatever it may be, it's to say that Our life is to be an undivided life of love. Because analogically, as an analogy to God, that's what God is like. Does that make sense? That's exactly what John is trying to teach. We don't divide up and parse out our love. We want a comprehensive love. Fourthly, or fifthly and finally, divine simplicity means that no fruit of the Spirit can be separated from any other fruit of the Spirit in the image of God. Spirit is inseparable from the Father and the Son, with whom he wholly shares in the simple divine nature. All that is in God is God the Spirit, and we have been filled with him. Therefore, as those who are called to be imitators of God, Ephesians 5, the fruit of the Spirit should be no more divisible in our lives than they are in God. Simply to walk and to be led and to live by the Spirit means cultivating all, not just some, of the Spirit's fruit in our lives. Now, it's not to say that there aren't going to be times in our lives where some aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are more visible than others. Some might, by virtue of circumstances or of God's grace, manifest themselves more clearly or more often. But what it is to say is not that Lori gets a little bit of love and Mike gets a little bit of patience, right? Becca gets a little bit of self-control. It is to say that insofar as you are a temple of the Holy Spirit and and all that is in God is in the Holy Spirit, then the fruit of the Spirit cannot be divided in those in whom he dwells. Is that we are to be, we are to be cultivating by God's grace, that fruit in our lives in a way that is undivided. We want to see the whole fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so when you go to that list and you see love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, and you look at all of these, you should be thinking not just which one of these are mine and which ones are not. You should be thinking all of these are mine because the Spirit is in me. How do I cultivate all of these in such a way that I am imitating God? And so we should think about the doctrine of simplicity even when it comes to the spirit of life. That's why Joel Beakey says this, there is a profound unity in holiness. That's what we've been talking about in 1 John and now with the fruit of the spirit. He says there's a profound unity in holiness for it faintly reflects the simplicity of God.
Mark Jones says this, the spirit-filled life represents an analogy of how God is all that he is in his simple, undivided essence. So we want to pursue a similar, undivided life in which all of the fruit of the Spirit is evident in all of life such that we'd be able to apply it in ways that give glory to God in any given circumstance. Okay? Any thoughts, comments, questions? Do you want to riff for about two minutes on prayer? Did any of those help you in the question that you had earlier? I still want to hear, like, I guess how you would respond to someone who... Okay, so ask it again. Like, how does, how does the doctrine of divine simplicity affect how we pray? Like, is it wrong to pray and ask the Spirit, like, only the Spirit, to do something yeah. that we know that He does? Is it wrong? No, I don't think so. I think there's a good and I think there's a a well-intentioned impulse to acknowledge the full divinity of the Spirit and praying to Him. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's always, so I'll put it this way, um, God's people have never done very well when they have gotten creative in the ways that they've approached God which means that I think we should be compelled to try to approach God as closely as we can by what we see in Scripture. And I can't think of any exa- I can think of examples of the Spirit speaking, but not I can't think of an example of anybody speaking to the Spirit. In the Spirit, right? And even the Spirit groaning in our behalf in intercession. Um, and so I would perhaps caution that person not because I think that they're ill-intended, not because I, I think that they have done anything unorthodox. I would just say you might want to try to conform who you pray to in a way that more closely resembles what we see in the Scripture. So Jesus says, here's how you pray. Pray to my Father, right? Um, we see this kind of divine logic in, the, in, in apostolic formulations of to the Father, through the Son, and the Spirit. And so... Uh, I think we're wise to try to hug that more closely. But that being said, to speak to the Father is not to speak to the Father somehow in exclusion to the Son or in exclusion to the Spirit. Or it's not to say, okay, I'm in the Spirit now, but now I'm walking through the Son, and now I'm with the Father as if they're all in distinct places or... You know, I was with one, now I'm with the other, like one's the waiting room and the other's the hallway and the other one's the doctor's office, right? Um, It's to say to commune with one is to commune with all, right? But economically, in the way that God has worked in redemption, they have distinct roles in that. The way that you're able to commune with the Father is by being united to the Son, and the way you're not united to the Son is in the Spirit, such that to be in the Spirit is to be united to the Son and with the Father, You can't ever commune with one without the other because God in his essence is indivisible and all that is in God is God and all of that is there with you as he is present with you. So that's probably the way that I would answer it. Um, But I think you have a good instinct in asking the question because as we talked about earlier, I think there can be a way, kind of a subtle evangelical modalism in which we relate to one person of the Trinity as if we're relating to all the persons of the Trinity and yet ignoring the very real distinctions that are there. Does that make sense? So we, we always want to be aware of the distinctions. We don't want to fold them all into one. 
But at the same time, we don't want to so divide them as if they're like three little gods that we relate to in different circumstances for different reasons. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's okay if it doesn't. No, it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. And that just goes back to some of the things that we were talking about. I would say, okay, maybe a good thing to meditate on would be how do I think about divine appropriations and the relation that it has to my communion with God? How he's worked in creation and providence and redemption. Um, how do I think about that in a way that, that God has brought me into communion with him such that I would know all of him? Uh, and yet, at the same time, within the context of those appropriations, not folding the one into the other, but maintaining their distinctions. That might be a worthwhile meditation, I don't know. No, good question. All right. You guys did so well. Your paper's really good, too. I'm proud of you for digging through it. I hope you're able to see now, as we've been going, how this is all just starting to kind of build in like this sedimentary fashion, you know, kind of like adding weight on the bar week by week, and you're just getting stronger and stronger in your knowledge of God, hopefully in your enjoyment of Him. Okay. Let me pray for you, and you enjoy the rest of your evening. Father, I thank you for our study tonight. Um, pray that you would always be making us more and more careful and precise, not out of a source of pride but out of a humble desire to speak of you and to reflect you in our lives as you really are. And that we would be careful against all of the subtle and deceptive ways that our hearts and our language can lead us astray from the knowledge of the true God. And I pray that you would help us to that end. I thank you that you've given us time to reflect on your simplicity and how that guards all that you are and I pray that it would function that way for my brothers and sisters, that it would guard your goodness and your glory and your grace such that it would never be diminished. And Father, we thank you that you are with us, that all of you is with us, and that all of you is for us. Thank you in Christ, by the Spirit. Amen.